Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today we pick up with part two of our conversation with retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Scott Campbell who is an A-10 fighter pilot and was wing commander at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base. If you listened to our previous episode, or part one, you would have heard all about the A-10, specifically the A-10A, the original version that came off the line, and you heard how amazing the aircraft is. Well, this episode, part two, you're going to hear even more about the A-10, but this time it's going to be the A-10C, which is a modernized version of the Warthog, and its capabilities are absolutely incredible. Um, The Air Force basically took what was already an amazing platform and has now given it a lot more capability. So I want to thank Colonel Campbell again for joining us and for sharing his thoughts and his perspectives on the magnificent A-10C Warthog. Colonel Campbell, thanks so much. Welcome back to Gold Bold. Uh, thanks for having me, Jody. Great to uh, be with you today. Last time we spoke about the A-10, and we talked primarily about the A-10A, and I know that there's stuff that cross-pollinates over into the A-10C, but I would love to kind of take this opportunity to talk specifically about the A-10C. Um, how does it differ from the A-10A? And uh, and then we can talk about some of the, some of the nuances um, for the platform and, and some stories that you might have uh, in your time in flying the A-10C. Sure. When you look at the airplane, you could put an A-10A next to an A-10C and, and you know, minus some of the stuff on the outside, like the targeting pod as an example. But hmm. the airframe itself, really, there's nothing different about it. And so it was all avionics. Now, the cockpit is where you see the difference. So, hmm. you know, the A-10A was you know, the, the classic steam gauges mm-hmm. as we refer to them. So lots of round dials and needles and, you know, old school, you know, I mean, 1970s technology. And then mm-hmm. the A-10C uh, completely redid the cockpit. So you have a lot of, uh, of glass in the cockpit. It's not pure glass, but you've got two multifunction displays that went in there and up front controller went up below the heads up display. Um, so that's where you really see the the guts of it is in the cockpit. And so what the C model did, what it was called when we were going through the operational test phase was precision engagement. That was the package that was developed for the aircraft, which made the nomenclature change it from the A model to the C model. Um, the kind of the change the integration uh, significantly. So the, the old A-10 didn't have a whole lot of bells and whistles to it. The stick and the throttle didn't have a whole lot of buttons on it. Um, so effectively what we got was the HOTAS, so the hands-on throttle and stick, mm-hmm. um, changed. And we effectively took the stick from a Viper, not the side stick controller, but the all the buttons on it. So okay. the T-MIS, the D-MIS, C-MIS, or, or what the, the buttons are referred to. So we got that stick. And we slapped that in there. Mm -hmm. And then we took the Strike Eagle throttle quadrant. Um, So all the buttons that were on the Strike Eagle throttle, we threw that in. And so it was really pretty neat to, you know, and I think it goes to the things you can do without reinventing the wheel. I think a lot of the, you know, if you 
you know, we're, we're seeing more and more, especially with Will Roper mm-hmm. uh, working the acquisition side of the house for the Air Force. Um, this idea of doing more of the commercial off the shelf or, you know, like what you and I have talked about with the F-15 EX, you know, the whole, you know, just taking something and improving, but looking around you and borrowing from other technologies mm-hmm. that, that already are, are proven and exist. And so anyway, did that. And so we added the data link. So the data link that the A-10 has is Saddle, uh, the situational awareness data link. So it wasn't Link 16. So it's a different uh, data link architecture. But the neat thing about the architecture that went into the A-10, it's dual use. So the Saddle radio that's in the A-10 that works the data link uh, waveform also has the capability to do via bath. And so the A-10 was the first fourth gen airframe that could do vmf and vmf is what the f-35 runs on and the marine corps has been very invested in vmf and so it gave us uh, a pretty key technology uh, to be able to use two different waveforms in the data link architecture and then of course using a, a um a gateway you can also speak link 16 as well so hmm. very robust um data link architecture fully integrated the targeting pod um so prior to the c model the a model had a very uh rude goldberg uh (laughs) solution if you would so the so what we did in the a model is when we when we first integrated the lightning targeting pod onto the jet Mm -hmm. right at the start of iraqi freedom um we actually put an interface into the pylon that convinced the jet that the targeting pod was a maverick missile so what you did is you controlled the targeting pod like with like through the screen that the Maverick missile, which was a really poor quality screen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was good enough to shoot a missile, but mm-hmm. it wasn't built for a targeting pod. But it also made for some really heinous pilot vehicle interface, like to recage the 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 targeting pod. You would, you know, go back, back forward on this one switch. And it was <laughs> it was so I mean good on the engineers they made it work yeah. but it was not not good pvi and so right. the c model brought some real cutting edge pvi where with one push of one button i could slave every sensor to one thing um nice additionally um so that all came into to play uh some other things that were were kind of follow-on integration um the radar warning receiver was integrated into the uh, moving map. So on the uh, on the data link display, you had a moving map mm-hmm. where you could put threats, and then our radar warning receiver would interact with that. So that if the radar warning receiver detected a threat, and it was correlated with where it was was showing up on your map, you know the the system could tell you that the signal is coming from that location. And then verify that if if you had marked it as this is a possible threat, mm-hmm. then the system would confirm it as a threat. Um, and so you would have visual uh, displays to back up. So like, you know, on the radar warning receiver, you know, the, there's arbitrary rings on there. You really don't know at what range. It's a signal strength issue. But now on the moving map, you had something that was plotted. So now I knew exactly, OK, it's not just over there at left 10 o'clock somewhere. I know it's at left 10 o'clock, 15 miles away, which means I'm approaching the lethal, you know, engagement envelope of that threat. So huge situational awareness building tools. Um, 
probably the biggest thing that the C model brought to the fight was smart weapons uh, with as far as inertially aided munitions. So uh, of the 11 pylons that are on the aircraft, you know, typically we use 10 because the the centerline pylon, if you ever look at an A-10 that's got the full 11 pylons on it, mm-hmm. there's three pylons that are, are jammed up pretty close to one another right underneath the belly. And the All idea right. that's stations five, six, and seven, normally we have five and seven. Usually station six, the only time we use that is to put an external fuel tank, which is we use those when we're ferrying jets, yeah. generally speaking. Yeah. And so normally that one's not there. We take it down and we use five and seven. But so those inner six stations were all wired for 1760 data bus, which the 1760 is what allows the jet to communicate to an inertially aided munition, meaning the jet can hand off uh, position information to the weapon so that the weapon knows where it is in space. So a JDAM, for example, knows that this is where I am right now. This is where you're telling me to go to strike a target. And so that's how the magic happens. And so it allowed us to, to use those I I IMs as we call it, nurse-related munitions. So whether that be the full series of JDAM, um, the full series of uh, cluster bomb. So, the CBUs that have the IMs capability. So CB 103, 104, 105. Um, So it gave us all those uh, smart weapon capabilities. So now, you know, unlike the, the weapon or the jet I took to war, you know, my first combat sortie, which had, you know, Mark 82 dumb bombs. Okay. uh, You know, and, and the smartest weapon we had on the airplane was the Maverick missile. Mm -hmm. Um, But everything else was, was, point and shoot or a dumb weapon is is a referred to right which is a it's a glide weapon right um and now the jet had targeting you know capability with a constantly computed impact point mm-hmm. which made it more accurate but mm-hmm. i still had to dive towards the target on an old-fashioned 45 degree wire as we would refer to it uh to get the weapon on the target well now we've got laser guided munitions inertially aided munitions and i can you know, just release them from a level delivery, you know, from five miles away and they're, and they're going to go after the target. And so it greatly enhanced the targeting capability. Um, then, you know, the other thing they thought through, which was great was that they allowed for capacity to add more stuff. And so, uh, we improved the with the upfront controller. We enhanced the communication suite by upgrading to an ARC 210 radio, uh, which gave us more capability. Uh, we added SATCOM onto the aircraft, so you had over the horizon communications capability. Uh, and then we added the helmet mounted queuing system. Awesome. Um, so the A10 does not have Jehemix, it has the Hemet. Um, which is the Scorpion is is the model of that, uh, helmet mounted queuing system, which is a monocle. Um, the Mm. key with the Scorpion, the reason we went with the Scorpion when we were going through test was it was compatible with night vision goggles. So in our line of work and close air support, what we could not do because Jehemix at the time did not support you either wore NDGs or you wore Jehemix. You couldn't right. wear both. Right. And yeah. so the beauty of the Scorpion uh, solution or integration was it allowed us. So you have the 
the monocle over your right eye and then your NVGs come down external to that. And so hmm. we were able to have both, which was, was an absolute requirement when we were looking at platforms to integrate into the aircraft. So um, that took it to a whole new level because now it would allow me to look over the canopy. So I didn't have to put my point my nose at something to slew a sensor, for the example, the targeting pod, mm-hmm. or I didn't have to have coordinates. I could just see something, put the cursor in my eye, mm-hmm. you know, my helmet mounted uh, sight, and then hit one button on the stick, and I could slave all the sensors in the aircraft to what I was looking at. So the speed at which we could target just rapidly improved. And so when you put it all together, the speed at which we could execute the kill chain just was exponentially improved. So I could, using all the systems in the C model, if I saw something outside over the canopy bow, what I would do is I would quickly, I would look at it. Mm -hmm. I would cue my targeting pod onto it. Once I looked down and I had it captured into my targeting pod, I would make one more press. I would designate that as my sensor point of interest. And then I would press one more switch and I would broadcast it over the data link to my wingman. Okay. So in just a few seconds, without saying anything on the radio, my wingman has my targeting data in his cockpit to which he can then designate that target that showed up on his data link display designate it as his sensor point of interest enslave all his sensors to it and now we have the exact same picture and my entire flight can have all of our sensors on a target in roughly 10 seconds and so in the past with an a model that would probably take minutes and that would be with a proficient flight so so it was it, it just yeah. And, and now, you know, so the speed at which I can target mm-hmm. is enhanced incredibly. And now the weapons at my disposal are far more accurate than what I had in the past because the system is now uh, capable of generating high grade coordinates that are able to go into an inertial aided munition that, you know, it has an advertised accuracy, but in test, we knew that we the jet would would routinely put it inside of five meters easily. Wow! And so, um, and and so yeah. So the C model is just in a is just the enhancement is just unbelievable with a, an aircraft that was already pretty lethal, um, but the precision and the enhanced capabilities. Um, I mean, when I look at what my squadron when when i was a wing commander when my squadron the bulldogs went downrange for inherent resolve in syria and iraq the entire aircraft was precision guided munitions there wasn't a single what we would refer to as a dumb weapon on board i mean you know we had laser jdam they had 500 pound jdams 2000 pound jdams air burst you know so cockpit selectable fuses mm-hmm. so you know the the enhanced pylons allowed you to change the fusing in the cockpit we never had that capability um the rockets <laughs> they carry agr20 is a laser guided rocket so we took the stalwart 2.75 inch rocket which has been around you know since vietnam 
we put a laser guided package on it. Mm. So it's got a seeker. So those seven rockets, which used to be, we, if we were shooting high explosive rockets, we would shoot the whole pod because they go everywhere. When I say everywhere, you know, (laughs) they kind of spread out. They're not highly accurate, you know, not at the range we're shooting, which is, you know, in the two mile range, slant Mm -hmm. range. Mm -hmm. Now we put a laser seeker and a guidance kit on each one. So now my guys, instead of, you know, they would see a motorcycle ripping along across the desert at 45, 60 miles an hour, Mm -hmm. and they would shoot a single rocket at two mile slant range and pop that guy moving 60 miles an hour on a motorcycle because that thing has an accuracy where it hits within 18 inches of the designation of the laser. And because the targeting pod has the capability of tracking Mm -hmm. the moving target, it can provide lead laser guidance Ah, if it needs to, Mm -hmm. it can tell me the exact speed of the target. Um, So, I mean, the targeting capability is just off the charts. And then (laughs) added to all of that, take an aircraft, which is arguably the most rugged in the world Mm -hmm. when you talk about tactical aircraft Mm -hmm. and enhance it even further. So the airplane's ruggedness comes from its engineering and design. As I said, we didn't really change the airframe itself. Mm -hmm. But what we did do is we added a full defensive suite uh, with a full electronic and IR countermeasure system. So we put a missile warning system on the aircraft. So if you look at the jet, that is the one difference you'll really see for the, for the experts that I know you have listening. Mm -hmm. When you put that a model next to a C model, you'll see the airplane has a couple of what we refer to as warts on it. Yes. And if you look at the wingtips and then the tail, you'll see a couple sensors that kind of bump out. And what they are is if you look closely, you'll see their IR and uh, laser sensors. So the jet can detect, it detects the plume from a missile. So if a, you know, one of the biggest, you know, threats to the A-10 and the environment we operate in are man pads and IR missiles. So it's not just shoulder launch, obviously the SA-9, the Mm SA-13, um, because you don't get a radar signal. So the radar warning receiver is not going to detect it. Right. So the only way to detect it in the past was the Mark one eyeball. Right. And you had to see that thing come off, you know, the rail or off, off the ground. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the, especially like an SA 18, there's not much smoke plume to right. it. And, right. and so, uh, they're exceptionally hard to detect and they're highly, you know, they're highly, accurate they're highly lethal and so now we have a system that detects the not only does it detect that ir signature but the jet is faster than you are so we allowed the system to go into a a full auto mode or a semi-auto mode where if the jet detected a missile it could immediately dispense a flare program before the pilot did anything and so you could, you know, you would sit, you know, all of a sudden is all you know is in your headset, you hear missile, missile, and the jet's already puking flares off and decoying the missile before you can even look over your shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it it took one of our greatest threats and greatly neutralized it, um, you know, and, and then and then it integrated into the into the system where you would see it on your radar, radar warning receiver, so you knew where it was coming from. You could still break into the missile. 
same thing with the it, it also enhanced some of the uh, radar threats because the jet when the jet processed a, a radar threat locking on um, and based on what you had programmed into the aircraft it knew it was within a lethal ring and had a launch signal then when you put g on the aircraft to initiate a missile break once the jet felt the g it would dispense the optimal chaff program uh for the parametrics it was receiving wow so yeah i mean because awesome. the a model when i climbed into the a model what i would do is i would open a little door right next to the ladder by the cockpit mm-hmm. and and there were six switches four of them were the chaff intervals and then the other two were the flare intervals and i could i had to set a program on the ground and then that's what i was stuck with okay and then i would have to manually dispense it um so you know the, the enhancement on the survivability was incredible and so it it really really made made it so that now i didn't have to rely on the dual hydraulics the titanium bathtub I sat in right. all the incredible right. designs that Fairchild put into that jet. Cause ideally now I wouldn't get hit. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, right. And so I wouldn't have to put it to the test. And, and so that, that was another huge enhancement. So yeah, the C model is just, it, just a, an incredible, you know, taking an engineering Marvel, uh, uh, you know, when you talk about the hardware and then now adding just, the most incredible avionics and software into the airplane to, to just make it even more of a, a lethal platform. Uh, it sounds like an amazing, uh, an amazing upgrade. And uh, it, it, so it, there's a lot of things to that. So um, the first, the first question I got to ask is you mentioned that um, with the data link, uh, it also has a VMF uh, capability and uh, it, I should have perhaps asked in part one of our A10 discussion, but um, so the A10 is obviously an Air Force asset, uh, but you guys are tasked with the close air support mission. So is there a service that you guys are more oriented to supporting? And so it, obviously the two there are either the U.S. Uh, Army or the Marine Corps. And I'm wondering... Uh, about the VMF because you said the Marine Corps is heavily invested in it. So um, I'm just wondering kind of what was the thinking behind that? Cause it, cause it um, seems, it seems very astute, you know, to kind of have that as well. Yeah, I think it was, the idea was, you know, I think it was an opportunity mm-hmm. that based on the saddle radio mm-hmm. um, that there was, there was capacity and an ability to, to do both and without more, right? We didn't have to have a second radio or anything else. And so it it was out there. And so we said, well, you know, based on cast, you know, is a joint mission, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's as joint as it gets. And so when we, we looked around and we said, well, we need to be able to talk to everybody. And, you know, if, if we're supporting the Marine Corps, you know, that's, that's their primary waveform, the, the message language that they're going to use. Well, we better have an ability to do that. And mm-hmm. so we said, okay, saddle, you know, the, the primary, you know, at the time, the primary waveform that the Air Force was using was Link 16, at least in the 
in the fighter world. And so we said, okay, well, we're good there because we just need a, a, a gateway and, and, you know, the gateway translates, right? That's really what a gateway is. It just translates waveforms and switches them over to whatever one you're using. So (laughs) if I send a saddle formatted message, uh, it goes through the gateway and comes out the other end as an F-16 or, or is a, a Link-16 message for aircraft on the other side that need that format um, and vice versa. And so it'll it, at the time, you know, Lockheed was the prime contractor on the aircraft, you know, and Lockheed obviously was developing the F-35. And so that was already a thought was, well, what's what's coming down the pipe? And so when we looked across the landscape, it made absolute sense to have as much capability as possible and not have to go in and retrofit something. And so uh, I think it was more of the, hey, let's pack as much capability into this jet that we can get while we've got it cracked open uh, to do all these modifications. And so I think it was pretty forward looking instead of the standard, you know, what's in front of me right now and not worry about what's the horizon. Um, but to the core question, generally speaking, our customer is the Army. And, you know, because the Marines, when you look at a MAGTAF, the mm-hmm. Marine Air Ground Task Force, right, mm-hmm. it is it is kind of an all-in-one, right? You know, it's just like you roll that package out, and it's got everything you need. True. Um, right. You know, they can, they, they can get themselves from the boat <laughs> to the shore. Um, you know, they've got armor. They've got helicopters. Mm-hmm. They've got close air support in the form of both helicopters and fixed wing. I right. mean, they come in, they come with everything, right? They're a self-supporting task force. Right. True. Um, True. Whereas the army, you know, the army has attack helicopters, but by doctrine, they don't do CAS. They do CCA. I know the term continues to evolve, but close combat attack um, because it's organic. So the army the army calls it something different because they own it. It's like flying artillery is how they, they envision it. Um, whereas because, because the Apache, because it's not a cast asset, Mm -hmm. then it can't be tasked to anything, but the unit it belongs to. Right. Right. And so as, as soon as, as soon as you're a close air support asset, you belong to the air component. Mm -hmm. And then the air component works with the land component and figures out who gets what. Um, so, the, the army likes to have control of, of the maximum amount of things that they can for obvious reasons. It's not mm-hmm. a hit on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, the more, you know, it's the same idea with the Marines. It's why the Marines have the MAGTAF. They, exactly. they not only they own it, but they train together. Right. You know, and every, yeah. every Marine fighter pilot goes to the basic school TBS and they learn to become an infantry officer, right? Mm-hmm. Every Marine, a rifleman is not just a saying it's legitimately true. And so those guys, they live, work and breathe together. And so they understand each other. And so for the Air Force, it's more of a challenge because we're working with another service. And so, you know, the whole, as we jokingly call it, the great divorce of 1947, when the Air Force separated from the Army Mm -hmm. and became its own service, you know, there were a lot of agreements with the Key West Agreement and whatnot on, on who could have what, who could do what. And so fixed wing, you know, fighters and attack aircraft was the air force. And then the army was allowed to retain rotary wing. Um, but the air force was who owned the fixed wing side of it. And by de facto or default, if you would Mm -hmm. became responsible for providing that support to the army. 
Um, and so, so we primarily support the army because the army has no organic assets mm-hmm. to do close air support. Generically speaking, again, we can split hairs about attack helicopters, but you know, when it comes to fixed wing casts, uh, the army doesn't have that capability. And so, so as a result, just based on that, the Marines have their own capabilities. So typically the Marines support the Marines. Uh, you will see, I mean, it doesn't mean it's exclusive. The Marines will provide, you know, depending on when they look at their, like if you look back at the start of Iraqi freedom, mm-hmm. you had one sector, which was the Marines going up one side and then you had the army coming up the other side. And right. so the Marines mainly supported their sector, but there were times when they had excess capacity and then they would put that, they would give that over to the air component. And then there's been times we've supported the Marine Corps where the Marine Corps doesn't have enough capacity. And so the air component will then task fixed wing air force casts to support the Marine Corps. But generally speaking, the, the majority is usually the air force supporting the army just based on that relationship and who has what assets. Hey everyone, I'm pleased to take a quick moment to recognize our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. The company provides networked C5 ISR capabilities for defense, intelligence, security, and commercial missions. What is C5 ISR? Well, that consists of command, control, communications, computers, cyber, and intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. In the next part of this episode, you're going to hear Colonel Campbell speak about the communication that occurs between the Air Force and the Army or the Marine Corps in the context of close air support. And it's in instances like that where companies like Cubic play a critical role day in and day out with their secure communications technology. This is enabled by six decades of success and Cubic's commitment to continuous innovation, which ensures their customers are prepared for their next mission. I thank Cubic very much for their support of this podcast and what we're trying to do, and I encourage you to visit them at cubic.com. Thanks, everybody, and now back to our show. Does that make training any more difficult, Soup? Because... Um, clearly you have to coordinate with the army or does the air force uh when you're flying an a10 and you have to coordinate with a jtac is it an air force jtac or are you coordinating with army jtac because they're two different services is there more more coordination required or how does that training aspect work the air force provides jtacs to the army so at every army division mm-hmm. effectively has an air support operations squadron attached to them Okay. So here in my backyard, we've got Fort Carson, which is home of the 4th Infantry Division. And attached to the 4th Infantry Division is the 13th Air Support Operations Squadron. So the 13th ASOS is an Air Force squadron Mm -hmm. um, that provides direct support to that Army division. And so within their squadron, they have air liaison officers that are assigned to each army brigade within the division and then they have a, a, a complement of jtacs and one charlie fours which are romads radio maintainer and, and driver it's a old acronym from back in the day but 
Um, so they've got JTACs, they've got radio guys who do a lot of the work on the equipment. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the officer cadre, the air liaison officers, are they're the direct advisor. So the brigade ALO is stand, you know, in, in, in combat, you know, and, and I'm uh, not literally necessarily, but, but from a functional perspective is he is the air force guy standing next to the brigade commander advising him and working for him so that the brigade commander goes, Hey, this is my objective. This is what I want. I want that over there, th- those forces, enemy forces over there to go away, mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, for lack right. of a better term. Right. And then the ALO's job is to translate that and go, okay, this is, this is the close air support we're going to be, we're asking for or that kind of thing. So yes, it's, it's complex because you have two services, but the tactical air control system, army air ground system is what it's called is the system is how we integrate as, as two services and how, how a air support request goes up, you know, from the lowest levels and eventually hits um, the ASOC. So that you, normally the division ALO uh, will be advising the division commander and he'll be making those recommendations and he will be prioritizing requests. So you kind of have an airman at every step of the way going up the army chain of command is how it works. And so okay. the folks that we're talking to are airmen those are air force jtacs that live and breathe army they live on the army fort they go everywhere with their brigade or battalion or division whatever level they're at Um, and so they that's where the habitual training happens and so those airmen assigned to that asos live and breathe army and so they effectively are our translator right there there are our gateway to the to the customer and so the other piece of it is is that the jtac is by definition the first letter in jtac is joint joint terminal right. attack controller right so you can have marine jtacs you can have army jtacs you can have a navy jtac now typically um the the jtacs are air force the army because then the army doesn't have to invest in that um you know they have forward observers who work the artillery side of it but they rely on us to provide the jtacs now in the special operations community you see them across all four services a little bit more but more most of the jtacs are marine corps Mm -hmm. because obviously like i said they do everything kind of organically and then air force those are the predominant if you look across the services those are the two services where the jtacs really uh, have a robust presence and so but it's governed by a joint manual so the joint close air support uh uh, manual, which is joint doctrine for U.S. forces, governs how we do close air support. So every service does it the same mm-hmm. um, according to that doctrine. And then we have a joint forward air controller and a joint terminal attack controller memorandum of agreement, which says all the services agree that this is the required training to be a JTAC and this is the required training to maintain your rating as a JTAC, if you would, your currency. So you have to get so many controls, so many types of controls, uh, that kind of thing to stay current and qualified as a JTAC, gotcha. uh, which is the same thing we have to do as forward air controllers. Because as a forward air controller, I'm a qualified JTAC in the sky. Right. And what that means is right. I can provide terminal attack control for an airstrike on behalf of the ground force commander. And mm-hmm. so 
Um, and, and so that's how we, we try to maintain control of the chaos and, and jokingly, you know, the, the mantra for forward air controllers is we control violence. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And so because you have multiple services working in a, in close proximity, right? Cause that's the, the two key components of close air support. When you read the joint definition of it is detailed integration in close proximity. Right. And so that means you have friendlies in close proximity to the enemy or the target. Mm -hmm. And that drives the requirement for detailed integration between the air component and the land component. And so it's very complex. And yes, so it, it makes training a little bit more of a challenge because, you know, I, I, I can't go out, you know, the Marine Corps, because they own all the assets, can direct, hey, this infantry unit, you're going to go out and work with this uh, attack squadron. Um, because I, as let's say the, the you know, commander, I own all the assets. Mm -hmm. And so I can issue that, you know, I can direct them to go out there and work together. Well, when you have two distinct and separate services, I can't direct the army to do anything, right? right, right you know, exactly. if I say yeah. that, as a wing commander, hey, I want to get some training for for my guys, uh, for one of my my fighter squadrons. I can't say, hey, I need you guys to give me a battalion because I want to practice with artillery and, and helicopters. And and I really want to integrate with a large force, mm -hmm. you know, and I mean that, you know, that ground commander could be like, you you can go piss up a rope, too. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, so for us, it, it's more of a challenge to work that integration, which is very parallel to when we have to fight together. Yes. Um, and so so we have to find opportunities to do exercises. So we actually have on the large scale uh, spectrum because the Army has two large training centers, the National Training Center and Fort Irwin and the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And so those are the two primary where like in, they'll send entire brigades out to train. Um, and those are, those are where they do their, they're kind of their equivalent of red flag for mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. They do their big workups at where they can do large scale force on force engagements. And so to help that integration, we actually established two air force units. So very similar to the model where I have an air support operations squadron at the army division at both of those training centers, we have, uh, two squadrons um, that uh, they're combat training squadrons, uh, the 548th and the 549th that are located there to facilitate Air Force integration. So whenever the Army does one of those large exercises, we will typically send a squadron to support so that we ideally in, in the land of theory where everything works well, ideally the Army gets us there to support them so that they can work on their training with air. Uh, and then we can actually get out there and work with a large scale army exercise so that we can be integrating with artillery and huge tank battles, which are very hard to simulate. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so that's one of the ways that we've tried to work through that so that, um, when we, we call it green flag East and West. So, cause of the location. So, Red flag is when we do our big air-to-air -air battles. Mm -hmm. um, and then green flag is where we go out and do big air-to-ground battles. And so that was where that model was uh, was brought to bear. And so 
that's one of the ways that that we try to do that. And and but it's tough because anytime you have, um, you know, not necessarily conflicting but not congruent training objectives, it becomes a battle for whose objective are we working on today? Because right. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> You know, as a young pup, I still remember going out at NTC doing back then we called it Air Warrior, but Green Flag West. Mm -hmm. And we would get out there and start roaming the battle space. And like early in the battle, we if we found the enemy's the enemy's headquarters, Mm -hmm. we would just go in there and lay waste to it. (laughs) And so then the the army would be pissed because it's like six in the morning and we've already taken out like half their tanks and so now they can't they you know their objective for the day was to have this big tank battle but in the exercise the tanks half of them are dead and so now the, the they have an advantage which is great but you know in combat they want that to happen but they're like look but but we want our tank commanders to have an opportunity to fight a much larger force today or something like that. And so like they would literally flip a switch and be like airs turned off. Like, so we would, you know, <laughs> if you were unfortunate to show up after that, they, they would just have you sit there and hold and like look at stuff and they wouldn't let you attack anything. And so <laughs> it's somewhat artificial and completely understandable, but frustrating because, right. you know, your, your objectives are at odds because I'm like, well, of course, if I find all these tanks piled up, you know, like, <laughs> dude, that's like a, that's a, a fighter pilot's dream. If you've got cluster bombs on the airplane. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. And so <laughs> let anyway, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But oh, I mean, I think I think since since, you know, 9-11, you know, in the especially with Iraq and Afghanistan fighting counterinsurgency you know, that's a lot of close in fighting, a lot of danger, close troops in contact. And so I think that um, when I was a young battalion air liaison officer in my first fighter squadron, mm-hmm. I was assigned to the 82nd Airborne and they never used us. Like, you know, if, if we went to JRTC or NTC, one of these big exercises, yep. they would drag us along with them. Mm-hmm. But that was like the only time we did anything. Mm-hmm. But after after 9-11 and Afghanistan and Iraq really got going, mm-hmm. the the army learned the value of their JTACs and their liaison officers and would not go anywhere without them. And I'm sure. um, yeah. it became, you know, an insati- insatiable appetite for mm-hmm. more, which we really had, a, we struggled with producing because, you know, I'm an A-10 pilot and I'm a battalion air liaison officer. And where do I go? Well, it depends on who goes first, you know, right. like if, right if my squadron's already in the fight, well then my army battalion doesn't get me mm-hmm. because I'm working as a pilot, not as a ground guy. Um, but then at the same time, if the army deployed first and took me, you know, by agreement, I'm no longer available to my squadron because I'm going to be on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so, so we had to really change the model, uh, in about probably 10 years ago. And we decided to create, we had career JTACs. That's a, for the enlisted side of the house. But what we didn't have were career ALOs because mm. what you did is you would do what we would call an ALO tour. Mm-hmm. So like the battalion level came from fighter squadrons, okay. but then the brigade and up, like you would, you know, like one of my friends who was an F-15 pilot, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, was like told, okay, you need to go do an ALO tour. And so he spent a year as an ALO as a C model F-15 driver <laughs> who knows nothing about close air support. Right. <laughs> 
you know, but you know, the, what it said is you, they needed a rated pilot. And so he got stuck doing it. Now he learned a lot in the tour, but Mm -hmm. you know, he's like, you know, they took me, took six months for me to learn what you guys do for close air support. Whereas, you know, an A-10 guy could walk right in, but we only had so many. And so that model was not going to be sustainable. And so what we just said is, well, if you have a career JTAC, Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you have a career ALO? You make it an absolute, like a career field. Exactly. Like, yeah. And Makes then you sense. become an expert. And so right. we created the air liaison officer career field. So now we have, we have, you know, I say kids, but you know, our, our air force Academy cadets is an example, select that career field. They'll go through some really extensive training and then that's what they'll do for their entire air force career, which is great because then they become really good at it mm-hmm. and they become experts and they have a tremendous amount of credibility uh in doing the job and so that's how we've gotten after that but it is a critical a critical skill for us to you know be able to integrate uh and do our job you know it's it's interesting to me that you say that like the 82nd airborne didn't really use you guys um pre 9-11 because um it, it makes me think about the um about the Eastern European front or the European AOR, because obviously the the A ten and uh, aircraft there are all configured, uh, or I guess not all, but you know the missions there would obviously be to repel perhaps a Russian attack if that were to happen. And now, like, granted, that isn't the eighty second Airborne that would probably be out there, or or it could be because they go everywhere. But, um, but was the army not really uh, pre nine eleven, um, really embracing you guys, uh, even there? Well, I think I think the the whole thing was the um, what if you look at let's go back to Desert Storm, okay? Mm-hmm. Sure. The ground battle lasted, you know, 72 hours, right. you know, because right. because of what we did in the air ahead of it. Mm-hmm. And so you really didn't have, you know, huge cast battles or, or battles were which required cast, you know, because the, the because outside of those 72 hours, you had six weeks of interdiction. Right. right? Which does right. not require the air component to integrate with the land component at all. Correct. The air component yeah. just goes and strikes at will, yeah. which is doctrinally how you're supposed to do it. Sure. Um, sure. Now, the enemy gets a vote, and sometimes, you know, that may not be it. Now, if you roll the clock back mm-hmm. to the, the European, so the folded gap scenario, as we call it, right? Mm-hmm. That's that the war that never happened. Mm-hmm. But that was what, what was going to happen, right? Was the Soviets were going to roll across the folded gap, and that was where the engagement was going to happen. Right. And... I think the difference was back then we had entire A-10 squadrons designated as OA-10 squadrons. So they were designated as TAS, so Tactical Air Support Squadron. Okay. So the TAS were all, the entire squadron were forward air controllers. So all the jets were designated as OA-10. There's no, there's no physical difference between A-10 and OA-10. Okay. It's strictly right. accounting for gotcha. lack of a better term. Gotcha. But those squadrons... Their, their only job in life was to go out and do forward air control. So mm. they would load up with white phosphorus rockets mm-hmm. and they were going to control the airstrikes. And so I think that the, the model, and, but at the same time, they were responsible for providing 
um, outside of the ASOSs, right, at the battalion level, they were responsible for providing those battalion air liaison officers. Okay. So every one of those pilots and the TAS were attached to an Army unit. And so the same model went was that you had to have enough manning in the squadron where you could support your Army units and you could support the sorties. Mm. And so the, the OA-10 squadrons had a much more robust manning model because you had to be able to do both. Right. And so... Right depending on who went to war, you know, some of those guys would end up on the ground. And we saw this in desert storm because back then we still had the tasks. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of a 10 guys I knew later in my career, um, who spent time on the ground in desert storm because their army unit deployed. And by agreement, they were in the tasks and they had to go with their army unit. And so there was a lot more capability back then. So I think that, um, we had an exceptional amount uh, you know, we had squatter. I mean, just let I me mean, just to paint the picture mm -hmm. at RAF Bentwaters in, in the UK, mm -hmm. we had six squadrons at that base. Jeez. That's more. Wow. That's more squadrons than we have in the active duty Air Force. A10 squadrons. Wow. wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, the size of the I mean, again, to put it in a perspective mm -hmm. and in Desert Storm. We didn't have all of them committed, but the Air Force had 134 fighter squadrons. Right now, we have 55. Hmm. So, so just the the scale allowed us to do so much more, and I think as a result, it allowed us to do more independently and not worry about the integration or sharing of resources. And nowadays, it, it, it's they're much more scarce. But I think the other big thing was is when you look at the engagement, you know, the model of engagement on uh, in the fold of gap, you know, I think that we didn't foresee the danger close, you know, the enemy is in a tree line only 100 meters away with machine guns. No, this was going to be a giant tank battle. So right. ideally, and back then we had different, we had different doctrine. We had this thing called battlefield air interdiction, which was, you know, ideally, you know, we only did close air support, you know, within 10 kilometers of the forward edge of the of the battle area, the forward line of troops. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of different just the, the model was completely different. So I, I think that all of a sudden in in Iraq and Afghanistan, you're you're fighting close in all the time with a couple people, right? Like three to 12 to 20 bad guys hiding in a tree line shooting dishkas and RPGs mm -hmm. is a way different scenario than, you know, a bunch of tanks. And so I think it, it just, it just changed the model of how we fought. And then, you know, just the value that, you know, that air power brought to bear, um, in, in some of these engagements just was, you know, where the army said, Hey man, this JTAC is gold because as long as I got him here with me, then he can make it rain, <laughs> you right. know, at, exactly. at a moment's notice. Yeah. And so I think it just, and I think it just, it was a, it was goodness because it strengthened our relationship with the army and it made us much more joint, uh, as teammates. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, we'll get into this discussion in a little while in, in more depth, but I think that's why there's also that love for the A-10 where, um, there is so much support for keeping it in the air force as opposed to the repeated calls for it to be retired. 
Oh yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's because of what we do. It's our only, you know, not our only mission. I shouldn't say that, but it's our bread and butter mission Mm -hmm. and we're built for it. We habitually train to it. Um, and so, you know, I joke that among our tribes in the, in the U S air force, my fighter pilot brothers and sisters who don't live in my community or grew up in my community, Mm -hmm. you know, if I said, you know, Hey, this, this, this army 11 Bravo, and they'd be like, what are you talking about? You know, why is an air force officer? Would I know an an army specialty code? Because an 11 Bravo is an infantryman, you know, and and that's, you know, and that's who we support, right? That's the, the core of who we are is, you know, we, we say the proverbial 18 year old rifleman on the ground is counting on me to do my job. Mm -hmm. And so it's a mindset. Mm-hmm. And, but then the airplane's iconic. Yes. And absolutely. I mean, when it, it, it's built for the mission, we get down in there, we get close, we're right there over your shoulder. I mean, there's a psychological impact to that, both positive for our guys and negative for the enemy is totally. once you see t- two A-10s overhead, you know, when you read the after action reports from the Iraqis in way back in desert storm, they used to call a 10, the, the black cross of death, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, based on the, you know, the parameter or the, the build of the airplane, you know, 57 foot wingspan and 53 feet, mm-hmm. you know, nose to tail, you know, it does resemble a cross. Yep. And so when He's... at a distance, that's what you would see is these two little black crosses yeah. circling. And the Iraqis said they scared them to death because they knew once they were done tearing up that unit, they were coming to them. And they're like, you know, so just because they weren't over top of you didn't make you any less scared because they just kept moving around like a pair of vultures, just killing everything in sight. Yeah. And, and you know, that has the same positive effect. You know, you talk to any army guy and, you know, I've 25 year career. I had the opportunity to run into so many dudes to say, you know, how much they loved our airplane and that the minute we showed up, like as soon as that cannon opens up, everybody knows who's there. I think it's a different psychological thing. It's not to say that an F-35 sitting up at, you know, 30,000 feet dropping JDAMs can't have the same impact on the battlefield. I'm just saying it's not the same psychological impact. I mean, oh, I completely you know, when, agree. Yeah. when an A-10 comes over your shoulder yeah. and, and opens up with a 30 millimeter cannon, I mean, if you're if you're on our side, man, there is no better feeling in the world. Just ask any army guy who's been there. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. that and 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 the psychological impact on the enemy watching that happen, knowing that we're not going anywhere. Like mm-hmm. that squeeze of the trigger that's absolutely devastating. I probably have ten more squeezes left, right. and that's just me. Right. And my wingman has another ten. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. We could we're, we're going to be at this all day. Yeah. And, and, yeah. You know, and so. And so I think that's where the love, the love affair is. I mean, you know, and yeah, well, it's just, it's different. Yeah. And, you know, so that love is there for all the reasons that you just mentioned, but then that support is now 
whether you say uh, buy or try service support, because it's not just the Air Force guys that might have the love for the A-10 and want to keep it around. But then you've got the people that that have seen the effects of it. And so you've got the Army guys or the Marine Corps guys that also love it and still want it to be around, you know. And uh, like you said, it's not like the other aircraft couldn't do other aircraft couldn't do the same things but um yeah being down in the weeds and and just hearing the aircraft seeing it seeing that cross there is there is something to that in in terms of battlefield effects yeah i mean i think that uh you know it's it's if you ask any jtac or if you ask any army infantry you know officer enlisted it doesn't matter if you're an infantry guy or gal mm-hmm. um you know, if you if you say, okay, you're in your troops in contact, given anything, what do you want on scene right now? And the answer is either going to be an A-10 or an AC-130, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's because firepower, it's close to me. I can see it. I can hear it. And it's going to stay there for a while. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's just... to your point, it's not to say that somebody else can't do it, but, you know, the argument has been, you know, you the hit on the, for example, the, the Viper community. So the, I think I've shared with you before that the A-10s and the F-15Cs now arguably the Raptor, we get along well because it's the idea that we are a single mission platform. Mm -hmm. You know, we are the absolute Jedi masters of our craft because that's all we do. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what makes us better than anybody at it. And then, you know, the, the hit or the joke or depending on your perspective, (laughs) you know, and, and Viper guys will always, you know, the feathers get a little ruffled, but you know, we always jokingly would say to them, you're a Jack of all trades, master of none. Mm -hmm. And because, and, and again, it's a good thing, right? I mean, frankly the navy and arguably the canadian air force have discovered hey it's it's there's a a huge efficiency in having one weapon system that can do everything because you know because now we're speaking from a logistics from a budget from that type of stuff Mm -hmm. but but you know ideally you're constrained because if i'm a pilot and i have to be able to do interdiction close air support, suppression of enemy air defenses, uh, air, you know, air to air. So, you know, whether that's basic fire maneuvers or air intercepts. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, you know, defensive, offensive counter air, Mm -hmm. like that's a lot of stuff. And I have 10 sorties a month, right? Generally speaking. Right. 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 And, and nowadays it's even less, you know, it's probably eight, especially if you're flying a gen five aircraft, which is a little bit prohibitively expensive to operate. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, that's a lot of stuff I've got to get done. Mm-hmm. And so I have a finite number of sorties and bandwidth to practice that. So I'm getting 10 sorties of close air support a month. You're getting two. Who's going to be better at it? Exactly. And I mean, it's just, it's just, it is what it is. And yeah. so, um, I, and, and that's, I'm obviously setting aside, you know, this is the utopia of unlimited budgets, right? And so it, it's not lost on me that the services have to make hard calls that we can't have all these toys because toys cost money and mm-hmm. I have only a certain amount of money in my pocket. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that argument's not going to go away. I mean, I think that the, um, 
it, what it does generate though, is the reason the army is most vocal about it is because they don't have their own. Mm -hmm. Right. And so Mm -hmm. they just feel like, and, and you can call it an irrational fear. And that's typically what our senior leadership will do, but the army just feels like if they, if the A-10 goes away, then the Air Force is not going to be there when they need them because the Air Force is going to lose interest in doing close air support. So there's this inherent belief with our our Gen 5 toys is that we just want to go out and win the war ourselves. And when when the cards are down or the chips are down, that we're not going to be there to support the Army because we're going to be off deep into enemy territory you know, blowing stuff up, mm-hmm. doing interdiction, mm-hmm. right? Because that's why why we have this shiny toy that's low observable is because we're going to go downtown, you know, the the proverbial downtown, right? Whether it's right. downtown Beijing or Moscow, and we're not going to be interested at what's right there on the army's doorstep, yeah. You know, and so yeah. it's understandable. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. it, it's yeah. You know, I don't believe it's irrational. No. Um, But I don't think the Air Force is going to let the Army twist in the wind. But I understand the connection that they make. And Mm -hmm. so, Mm -hmm. you know, it it is what it is. You know, there's so many aspects to this. Because when we talk about um, a platform, and and you and I have spoken about it before, um, what stage of the conflict are you in? And when you have a platform like the A-10, it's not afterburning. So it's actually a very efficient uh, aircraft, you know, you've got lots of gas, you've got lots of time on station. Um, you know, like you said, you can strap a, a, an external fuel tank on if you want, but that's normally just for ferrying, but you know, you, you have capacity and, and you have staying power and, and it's an extremely capable platform that is essentially paid for. You just have to keep, you know, training to it and, and, you know, funding it in terms of maintenance and support but but it's a good question to ask you would be what could you do to improve the a10 from what the a10c is today what could you do to make it even better oh the no, the number one hands down the number one ask all the time is engines oh really and so okay. yeah. now there's always going to be a healthy tension between what the pilots want and what the maintainers want right because <laughs> right. yeah true the pilots want more weapons and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, they want capability mm-hmm. to kill targets. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, lethality, survivability, the maintenance side of the house wants sustainability. Right. Right. And they, those are non-sexy things. Yes. Like right. True. putting a box in the nose of the airplane that is uh, sensing all of the stresses in the various locations of the aircraft and recording it. Because if I know that, then I can, you know, possibly sustain the aircraft longer because I know that the airplane's not out pulling five G's, seven G's all the time. Mm-hmm. It's only in, in acute portions of the sortie and, and versus having to make just basic at 7,000 hours, it's going to need new wings. Well, it depends, right? Every engineer knows this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and we always joke as pilots, you know, you got to dumb it down is some airplanes are more bent than other ones. Yeah, right. And, exactly. Yeah. But but again, if you you know, if you have you have fifty bucks and you can either buy the box to put in the nose to do that, or I can get this new Gucci sensor or weapon, uh, you know, the pilots are always gonna be like, Let's not spend fifty bucks on that stupid box, man. Let's <laughs> Yeah, right. And 
And, and that, that will always be there. And so like right now, the big thing that we had to do to keep the airplane flying, you know, and that's usually where we get is, you know, when the, the logisticians and engineers come in and go, look, idiot pilots, <laughs> if you, if you don't do this, you yeah. won't have an airplane to fly all that Gucci stuff. Right. right. And, right. and so, uh, and so like in this case, we had to get new wings. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we've already done a service life extension program where we, we beefed up all these spars and you know for lack of better term where the wings come uh, you know onto the airplane well Mm. now we're past that now they need new wings and so um but the next thing though that we're pilots it's a it's a very rare intersection where you will find both the pilots and the maintainers in agreement Mm -hmm. is engines new engines okay and not we don't want some high-end gucci f-35 you know forty-nine thousand pounds of thrust uh, we just wanted an upgraded version mm-hmm. of the TF-34, which is the motor that's on there. And if, and for the, you know, you've got folks that are listening that are, are wicked, wicked smart and understand every little nuance. And many of them know that the engine on the A-10 is a very close relative that's on the engine on most regional jets, right? The, yes. the, uh, Bombardier. Most of those regional jets fly some version of the CF thirty four, and so so GE definitely you know has looked at it and and has made offers. And I believe that you know they could. The last time we were looking at it, you know, I think that they could make some changes in the combustion. So, I mean, yeah, obviously technology's come a long way right. since that engine was designed, but we weren't we weren't had no intent of moving away from a turbofan. You know, we wanted that efficiency. Mm-hmm. What we just wanted was a little bit more power because the airplane, as it stands, has two jet engines that produce allegedly 9,000 pounds of thrust each. Mm. So, for the non physics majors in the group, <laughs> that's 18,000 pounds of thrust. Yeah. Normally, when I'm taking off with a combat load, the jet weighs 46,000 pounds. <laughs> so, do the math. <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't work, right? right. I mean, it, it does, but not well. Right. Um, right. And so, so you take off can sometimes be the most harrowing part of the of the sortie because you're just willing the airplane off the ground. Please, if, please, I'll tell you if it's if it's a hot day at Nellis Air Force Base in the summertime, yeah. you are absolutely praying that that pig gets off the the pavement. But uh, but awesome. I but I mean but ideally what it was it was going to maintain all the efficiencies but they had some technology where they could change some stuff on the fan blades mm-hmm. in, improved on the improvements on the compressor section um, that they could get another fifteen to twenty percent out of the airplane which again I mean we're not looking to add a hundred knots and it wasn't going to do that sure but really where it was going to improve the performance where we really wanted it I don't care about my high, my top end speed. Sure. It's disinteresting yeah. to me. Yeah. I know it sounds cool. Speed is life. Knock yourself out. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm 300 knots is just fine when I'm at 100 feet because a lot right. of things are happening really fast, really close to the ground. Exactly. But where I really wanted it was in the climb performance. Mm. And that's really what General Electric started looking at was how do you give me better performance? Because I don't need it when I'm pointing at the ground. Mm-hmm. What I need to do is when I want to get back up to yes. altitude after diving at the ground. Right. And really that was what we looked at. So I think that without a doubt, if you ask any pilot, you know, right now, you, I would say you'd be, get a better than 95% response in agreement that engines, that was, that was the, uh, you know, but it's, you know, the, the trick becomes 
you know, what do I want versus what do I need? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that the fact that the Air Force agreed to rewinging the jet, uh, I was surprised um, that we we got that money. Um, but I, I think that the agreement to, to rewing it was the death knell for any chance of ever getting engines. Who knows? Never say never. You know, I mean, yeah. we've survived. We've survived probably like eight attempts at retiring the airplane. Exactly. Um, yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Well, you know, you look at what's happening with the B-52 right now and, you know, mm-hmm. I don't, you know, they're not trying to get more speed out of it. No. Just more, fi- nope. <laughs> you know, more efficient. Right. Yeah. I mean, so. yeah. I mean, those engines are just done. I mean, right. and, and it just becomes, you, you know, you get to a certain point that becomes the, you know, it's a tough, it, it's tough to explain when people are like, well, the airplane's paid for, it only costs, you know, usually when you see the numbers, mm-hmm. the A-10 is roughly nine, $10,000 an hour for uh, operations and maintenance costs compared to a F-35 that's upwards of 30,000. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But while it is paid for, you know, just think of it this way. Here's your parallel, right? Mm-hmm. That, that 1978 Ford pickup truck mm-hmm. is paid for, you know, X times over. Mm-hmm. But your maintenance costs are pretty high because it's hard to find the parts. Yes. You know, you, you got to find a mechanic who can still work on a 1978 truck. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> you, you know, yeah, it leaks more. I mean, you know, and so that's the parallel is sustainability does become a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there is a certain point where you just you run out of sustainability. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're not there yet, but that that really becomes the crux of the conversation. Well, yeah. It, and I guess part of that is if you if you put a newer engine on uh, and maybe I would love to say in a utopian world, everyone's talking to everybody else and yeah clearly that's not the case but uh you know i don't know if there would be any synergy between it now that i just kind of thought of it uh you know the the b52 engine versus putting one on an a10 a similar type like i mean you know i know the b52s are potted engines but you know if you just took them for one for one yeah i think the challenge becomes the i mean you know, the, probably the example that I would point to is the KC-135, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like they went from the R model, right? They went from the old, you know, if you go all the way back to the A model or the E model, you know, the sure. water injected, yes, you know, right. black smoke pouring out of it, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> you know, a low efficiency turbojet right. to a high efficiency turbo fan, right? Correct. That's what the R model Correct. came and they were able to do it without, you know, minus the engines structurally altering the aircraft because that becomes you know, that's a no-go, right? That's if right. you've got to go that's back right. to Edwards and do developmental tests because you change the envelope significantly where you have structural concerns where you have to do that analysis, forget it. Forget it. Right. Um, exactly. And so that becomes the real challenge is how do you stay within that bolt-on solution, if you would. And so... Um we talked about how you guys had one mission, but I always kind of smile when I see the aim nine on the, on the wingtip and, you know, <laughs> yeah. so we, oh, yeah. we, we got to talk about all that stuff. And my, my thinking when I see the aim nine, is not that you're going to get into like some BFM type stuff, but, uh, but you know, it's more for helicopters, I would think, but you got the cannon. Yeah, too, so I don't know. It's both. Yep. It's yep. both. Yeah. We can, we can pull that thread. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We, we teach, we teach basic fire maneuvers. We do dissimilar combat training. I love the airplanes it. actually, the airplane in a close in fight is actually very capable. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause you know, so ideally, yeah, but I, you know, ideally, you know, we've had guys who are like, Oh, we need to get aim nine X. I'm like, look dudes in today's <laughs> day and age. Yeah. Like if, if, if we're getting into a, a, 
you know, beak to beak fight, yep. something bad has happened. I'm like, totally. That is yeah. the Raptor guy's job is to keep. I would rather put a bomb out there. You know, yeah. that's that's my job. Because yep. if I have two AM9s hanging on the wingtip, yep. Um, and I get it. I mean, you know, and rules of engagement will sometimes drive. My guys flew with them in Syria. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime we went into Syria, uh, west of a certain point, uh, we had to put those things up. Mm-hmm. And totally. You know, and that means I'm downloading a GBU-12, which, mm-hmm. you know, that that's not my job. It's a wasted station, in my opinion. But yeah. that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've been I've been fortunate. I've shot live A9s at, dr- at the drones and stuff. You know, as a weapons school instructor, and cool. I've gotten to f- to fight against Russian helicopters. Uh, we could talk about that. Giddy up! Awesome. Thanks, Perfect. Soup. Bye now. See ya. Bye. Hey everybody! I hope you've enjoyed our chat with Colonel Campbell. You can tell he's a wonderful resource on all things related to the A-10 and a lot related to the U.S. Air Force and collaboration with the Army and Marine Corps. We were going to have a follow-up chat, but Colonel Campbell himself had suggested that one of his colleagues, who is at the U.S. Air Force Weapons School as an instructor pilot, would be a wonderful follow-up to this chat because he is on the cutting edge of what's going on with the A-10 today. So stay tuned for a future episode of Go Bold, where we will be talking with that subject matter expert about the A-10 and what it's doing today. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. I really want to thank our sponsor again, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. And as always, if you have any questions for us, please reach us at gobolddepodcast at gmail.com and we will do our best to accommodate. Thanks everybody. Hope you have a wonderful day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.